So let me do something very quick, very, very quick experiment. I am going to say a phrase, and I want you to raise your hand if your parents or if another authority like a teacher has ever said this to you, okay? Does that make sense? I'm going to say a phrase. If your parent or a teacher or something has ever said this to you, then raise your hand. Nice and proud, okay? And by the way, I am subconsciously raising my hand for every single one of these. Okay, number one. How many times have I told you blank? Okay, pretty good, majority. Okay, next one. If I have to tell you one more time, blank, raise your hand. Okay, it's it's the same people is what I'm noticing. So some of you are like, yeah, so good. Um, The next, the final one. Don't make me repeat myself. Don't make me repeat. Very similar people raising their hands. This is very fascinating for me. Okay, this should be easy. Let's take a vote. Raise your hand if you think that your parents or your teachers say that because you did something really awesome. Yeah, okay, a couple of you. A couple of you just want to... You want to get after me. Okay, raise your hands if you think that happens because it's a bad thing. Yeah, very good. Okay, most of you understand the exercise. When someone normally talks about repeating themselves or having to repeat themselves, it's because you haven't been listening and you should have been listening and you're about to get in trouble. That's normally why we bring up that kind of phraseology because we're about to be in trouble. And when Philippians chapter 3 begins in verse 1, Paul says something about repeating himself. He says this, Rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So Paul begins chapter 3 by saying this, I'm going to repeat myself. But very unlike when our parents or our teachers talk about repeating themselves, and very consistent with the book of Philippians, this is not a condemnation, This is an encouragement. Paul is about to go into yet another section of Philippians in which he wants to give us an encouragement. And it's an encouragement that Christians will be very, very familiar with. And yet, and this is so key, and yet Paul needs to repeat this thing even though Christians know it already. Because it is so essential in the Christian life to hear certain things over and over again. And this is basically what he needs to repeat himself on. You need to know Jesus. So simple. You need to know Jesus. Or to say it another way, you need to know Jesus is more important than anything or anyone. Whether you've only been to church because you come to Roots, or whether you go to another church, or whether you've grown up in this church, that will basically go in one ear and out the other for many of us because we've heard that just about a million times. And yet Paul says, I need to say this so much because this is something Christians might think they get, but they don't get as deeply as they think they do. And this is ultimately what all of chapter 3 of Philippians is going to be about. The importance of knowing Jesus and how that changes your life. And he's going to talk about that in maybe the most detailed way in maybe the entire New Testament. And the summation verse of all of chapter 3 is actually the last verse that we'll cover today, but in a little bit more detail next week, actually. And it's verse 8. Paul says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
surpassing worth. What Paul is saying is that a relationship with Jesus needs to be your highest value. And the reason he needs to repeat himself to this, even with Christians, is because even Christians can live their life in a way where they're forgetting how much Christ is worth. We might intellectually understand it, but we don't necessarily reveal how much we know it in all our actions. Or you could say it this way. We need to be reminded of both the joy and the importance of knowing Jesus. The joy and importance of knowing Jesus. And uh, Paul's first verse actually reveals both of those things, joy and importance. So if you look at verse 1, Paul says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. That's joy. The only way, Paul is saying, that you can have joy is in Christ. And what he's trying to explain ultimately in this chapter is that isn't just informationally, but relationally. It's not just understanding a bunch of data or information about Christ. It's having a relationship with him. And if you do, it will be easy to rejoice, which is basically the language of worship, praise. If you really get a relationship with Christ, it's going to be easy to find joy in him. But the second thing he says is that it's important to know Jesus. And he says that with the rest of verse one. He says to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe. That's the key word there, safe for you. It's important to know Jesus because you're not safe if you don't know Jesus. Not safe from what? Safe from spiritual dangers and in the most serious way, not safe from salvation. If you don't know Jesus, you cannot be saved. This is, again, what Paul is going to be talking about in Philippians chapter 3. It is essential that Jesus in your heart is guarded, protected, and defended from everything else that's trying to snatch away what you were created to be and what you were created to do. Jesus has to be central. And then there's a reason, specifically with that importance bit, that he needs to address right now. And it's actually this big motivation that launches off the rest of this chapter. Look at verse 2. Paul says this. Look out. Look out. And he says look out three times. And look out is something that you yell when you see something that is dangerous and fast approaching someone you love. It's the language of warning. And Paul is warning about certain people. That's who he mentions in verse 2. He calls them dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. If you got stuck on the first one, dogs, you might think it's positive like me because you love dogs. Raise your hand if dogs are better than cats. I like this. I like that a lot. Well, you might be bummed to know that that's actually not a very nice thing to call someone. But you also might know that, obviously, because the second ones, the second and third point evildoers and mutilators, which is a gross word, people who wreck the flesh, those are not good words. And Paul doesn't mean them to be. They're unflattering descriptions of people you need to be warned about. And those people, contextually, were called Judaizers. There were people who called themselves Christians, but they didn't live what you would think is a Christian life. It wasn't that they didn't care about spiritual maturity. It's in their view, they actually cared a lot about spiritual maturity. But the way that they taught other people to be mature 
is to adopt Old Testament practices and customs. They said, yes, Jesus Christ, he might be important, he might be relevant, that's fine. But if you want to grow, you need to go to the Old Testament, see what they did, and you need to start doing it. That's the only way you can grow. One commentator, D.A. Carson, he put it this way. These Jews thought of Christianity as Judaism plus a little extra. And that's a pretty good description of Judaizers. And the thing that they actually cared about the most, the most important custom and practice to them was called circumcision. And for those of you who know what circumcision is, good job. For those of you who don't, it's pretty simple. Um, It was an Old Testament sign in which you were marking in an obvious way that you were not in the world. You were with God and separate from the world. And the way you did that is you separated part of your body from the rest of your body. And those of you who are chuckling, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who are mature, you're just sticking with me. So good job. And what it was saying, what these Judaizers were saying, is that if you really want to be separate from the world, you can't get past that sign in the Old Testament. You need to become Jewish in order to truly be for God, even if you call yourself a Christian. And there's a reason that Paul points to those people, points to their view of circumcision and spiritual maturity and says, look out. And because it's wrong, that is a wrong view of spiritual maturity. And the reason is because it was contrary to Christ and it elevated men. It's contrary to Christ and it elevated men. You'll notice that Paul actually responds to those people in verse three when he says this, we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision and we worship by the spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus. And he's saying that's the opposite of what the Judaizers believed. And what he means is this. They say you're separate from the world from doing these things. We say because God says that you're separate from the world because of Christ, because you've been united with Christ. And you know you're united with Christ if you understand the spirit of God works in you. That you believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and sanctification, which means his Holy Spirit has come, changed your life, not on the outside first, but on the inside, in your heart. And therefore, the greatest goal of your life is to glory in Christ Jesus. To glory in Christ Jesus, which means to magnify, to make much, to highly value Jesus Christ. And if you think any other thing outside of Christ helps or adds to Christ, then you're rejecting Christ entirely. It's Christ plus nothing. If it is Christ plus anything, then it equals nothing. So you can see why this matters so much that Paul needs to address this. And we could get into a lot of explanation and a lot of really fascinating theology that is honestly very important about why circumcision is no longer necessary. Even though it was in the Old Testament, it is no longer necessary for today. But that's actually not the main thing Paul needs to address. What he needs to address isn't the action, but the attitude. This is about what the Judaizers were thinking. It's their thought process behind the action that's the problem. And this is the problem. It's pride. It's pride. This is really a passage talking about pride for a very important reason, which is this. If you want to know Christ, there is always one thing that's in the way. One thing 
more in the way than anything else. It's the main thing in the way of unbelievers coming to Christ alone for salvation. And it's also the same thing that gets in Christians' way when they're trying to honor Christ, but they're having such a difficult time growing. For unbelievers and believers, it's the same thing in knowing Christ at all or knowing him more deeply. One thing that gets in the way, and it's this. It's ourselves. It's us. It's our view of ourselves that gets in the way. Because it is human nature to compete with Christ. Our self-concern, our self-dependence, and our concerns about our self-value get in the way of Christ. And this can happen in a lot of ways, but there's at least two ways that I think specifically for us might matter a lot. The first reason we get in the way is simple pride. Like I mentioned, it's arrogance. It's because we really have a high view of ourselves. It's very straightforward. And there's a second reason too, which is this, fear. We get scared that we're not good enough for God. Some of us, many of us here, we grew up in church. We understand the holiness and righteousness of God. And we understand that we're sinners. And so the natural response to knowing those two things is I have got to do stuff for God. And most often, especially people who grew up in the church, they jump there so quickly. But you'd be surprised to know people who don't know God also jump there. Because this is the difference between Christianity and every single other religion in the whole world. Which is this. I gotta do something for God to accept me. Fear. I'm not enough. The reality is this. Whether it's arrogance or whether it's fear... Or whether it's both. Hint, it's usually both. Both of them honestly have the same issue, which is this. We don't trust God. We don't trust God's plan in Christ. Ultimately, the issue is of assurance, which is probably one of the biggest things that I think most teenagers who are trying to understand Christ struggle with. But To give you some hope, I love what one famous pastor, G.C. Ryle, said about assurance. He said this, Assurance isn't a mere fancy or feeling. It's not the result of high animal spirits or a certain temperament of body, which means it's not just how you built your personality. It's not like certain Christians with a certain personality, only they can have assurance. Instead, he says this, It is a positive gift of the Holy Spirit bestowed without reference to men's bodily frames or constitutions. And here's the key. And it's a gift which every believer in Christ ought to aim at and seek after. The word of God appears to me to teach distinctly that a believer may arrive at an assured confidence with regard to his own salvation. To put all of that into simple English, just in case that was too tricky, is to say this. Do you want to know that you know God? Do you want to be sure that you don't follow some made-up religion? Do you want to be sure you're not wrong? Then you need to know Christ. That's what chapter 3 is about, and that's what Paul is going to get into. And today, we're really going to just cover one thing, which is how we get in the way. Because if we can get ourselves out of the way, then there really is nothing holding us back from truly knowing Christ, as he wants to be known. And this is an interesting way that Paul actually gets into this discussion. It begins in chapter 3. What Paul wants to do, actually, in explaining to us how we get in the way, is by sharing his own testimony. 
Paul is going to talk about his own testimony and how this issue with people is a huge issue that he struggled with too, which is amazing because then we can connect with Paul. And he says that in verse three, he says, we, which is those united to Christ, every Christian, we put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So this is the argument that Paul's going to put forward. He's going to say the Judaizers have a view of how good you can be or how good you can become to be right with God. And you know what? Everything they ever want to achieve, everything they want to be, I was. I hit every spiritual benchmark imaginable. And guess what? It didn't work. It didn't work. I told you last week that I've been enjoying uh, reading Chinese proverbs, and I've been reading more this week, and I found another one that I hope is helpful to understand this concept. The translation, because I won't give you the Chinese because I'll just mess it up, but the English equivalent of the proverb is showing off act skills at the master's door, okay? It's way easier to remember in Chinese because it's only four words, but this is the way it goes. In China, there was a carpenter named Lu Ban, and Lu Ban was the greatest carpenter in the whole country. He's like famous in China. And the legend goes that he was so good at carpentry that he created this beautiful thing of a phoenix. And it was so good that it came to life and it flew away. So obviously that's just how it goes. I don't think that happened, but everybody uh, seems to understand that story. So he's really good at carpentry. And supposedly everybody knew it. But one day Lu Ban was in his house and he was doing some carving and he heard a noise outside. And when he opened his door, there was a young man who had a bench, and he had some wood, and he had a carving tool. It's the same word for axe. And he was carving something. And he was doing it there because he heard that Luban was really, really good at carpentry, but he thought he was better. So he was doing all this stuff to try and impress Luban. But the reality was that he was not nearly so good as Luban. And so when everybody heard that this young man was trying to show off before the master, they saw how foolish he was. And basically the equivalent of that proverb is don't try to teach a fish how to swim. Does it make sense? There's some people, it's ridiculous to try and show how good you are because they're infinitely better than you. And that is Paul's argument that he's gonna give us. This is his argument. I'm Luban. Judaizers, you're the young man. Don't show off your spiritual awesomeness in front of me. I am the most spiritually awesome person you could imagine by your own standard. But here's the reversal. When Paul met Christ, he realized something. Paul realized, oh, I get it. I'm the young man. And Jesus is Luban. All of us are the young man. And the reason that we have such trouble knowing Christ is because we're trying to be Luban, but we're the young man. That's going to be Paul's argument. Paul calls this, the attitude of the young man, fleshly confidence. It's a kind of superiority that we get because of our natural man-centered view of what's valuable. And we care so much about the value that we have in comparison to other people that we have no idea 
that Christ is in a category of his own. And because those things translate so perfectly into our own lives, it is so helpful to review these things in Philippians 3. So Paul actually breaks down for us seven ways, seven ways in which he was spiritually superior to the Judaizers. But to make it simple, we can actually very easily break those seven things down into two categories. There's two ways that Paul could prove he was superior to the Judaizers. And the first one was this, his status. Paul took pride in his status. The first four things explain that Paul said, spiritually, I was born with more privilege than you could ever imagine. Number one, Paul says in verse five, that he was circumcised on the eighth day. So Paul had the OG, OT sign of spiritual privilege. He was the most spiritually privileged person because he received the sign exactly when he should have. This is actually a direct reference back to Genesis 17 when God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you my chosen people and all the world's going to know it because, and this is in Genesis 17, verse 10 and 12, every male among you will be circumcised. Who is eight days old among you? And Paul actually adds to that with the second thing when he says, I'm of the people of Israel. So what he's saying is, you Judaizers, you're all saying you have to take this sign to become a Jew. And Paul's like, I can't even remember not being a Jew. Because basically from day one, technically day eight, I was from Israel. And I received the sign. I didn't have to do anything. I was born into this. I am pure-blooded, pure, privileged God's person. Then he quickly adds a third one. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, there are lots of different reasons that scholars have said he could be mentioning this. I can only discern two personally that seem convincing to me. He obviously means being from the tribe of Benjamin is a good thing, even though Benjamin didn't actually do a lot of good things. It's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The first reason Paul could be mentioning it is simply him saying, I know exactly how Jewish I am because I can get it down to the tribe. And a lot of Jews couldn't do that. Because all the Jews went through exile multiple times. And so they didn't know their family history. They didn't have a document showing their family tree. But Paul's saying, I do. So that was a huge privilege to know exactly where you came from. But the second reason might be because of 1 Kings 12. And in 1 Kings 12, David's son's son, so David, Solomon, and then his son Rehoboam, was the king of Israel. And he was not a good king. But he was the king. But there was a mutiny. And a lot of Israel left the true king. Ten of the twelve tribes left the king. Except for two. One was Judah, which is the most important tribe because that's where Jesus would come from. That's where the Messiah would come from. But the other was Benjamin. Benjamin didn't mutiny. They stayed true to the king. So this could be a way that Paul is saying, of all the tribes to come from, I was from the tribe that was most faithful. I was from the tribe that never left the king. It's a good tribe to be from. And that's why Paul rounds it out with the fourth one. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Hebrew was the Jewish way to call yourself a Jew. And he's saying, I am the most Jewish person you could imagine. I am the most spiritually privileged person of the most spiritually privileged race on planet Earth. 
status markers. Paul knew he was valuable because of his status markers. And one thing you might notice about all of these things is they all have something in common. They're all things you are born with. They're all things you didn't choose to have. You woke up one day and you inherited them. And yet there's something about these identity markers that we start with from the moment we're born. We have all of these things that are part of our body or part of our family history, and we use them to feel important. Just think about them. For example, our race or culture. This is obviously huge in the world right now. Identity politics. You are from a race or a culture that has a background in history, and that is how you are built and how you're unique, and it's part of your history. You're part of that story. You might be proud of your family history. Maybe you've got famous people in your background, and that's pretty cool. Or maybe you're just proud of the fact you have Christians in your background, which is kind of what Paul was talking about. Maybe you're proud of your family's wealth, that you're able to spend as you would like, you're able to get the clothes you want and the experiences that you get to enjoy. Maybe it's even helpful to get friends. Maybe it's your looks. Again, something so incredibly valued in our culture. Society has a standard of what's beautiful, and maybe you've got it. Maybe you've got a lot of it. Maybe you've got just some of it. Certain parts of you, your hair or your height or your teeth. Maybe you're not arrogant enough to say, I've always been able to get attention. I haven't heard too many people say that in my life. But maybe you say something like this. I've never needed glasses. 2020 vision. You know, tiny little ways in which God builds us a certain way and it makes us feel valuable. Maybe it's your natural abilities. Obviously, people need to work hard to be good at something, but some of us were just born closer to good than other people. Maybe you're athletic and coordinated or maybe you've always been able to focus well. It's the little things you think when it's just like, man, studying is so easy for me. I don't move around in my chair. Like me, I fall over in my chair like three times a day. Or maybe you even say, I've been able to dunk on kids since I was like eight years old. And that's like in you. It's like, yeah, I love it. My dad is threatened. He never plays basketball with me. Whatever it is. And what I'm saying is there's so many things that you inherit from the day you were born and they give you value. So the question is obvious. Is it, is it wrong to feel valuable with those things? And the answer is not necessarily God gave us those things. God gave us all of the things we have and we should be thankful for them. What Paul is getting at isn't that the things are wrong, it's that we think wrongly about them. Because all of these things God gave us to thank him for. But what's our natural tendency? We use them to say, I'm better. I'm better than other people. We use those things as our ultimate standard of value. We use them to feel enough. We use them to feel like we matter. We use them to feel confident, superior, valuable, and important. We use them to create a hierarchy and then get to the top of it. As one blogger I read put it, we add up details in our minds and we tally points in our heads to create little scoreboards of who is important and why. And obviously we try to get to the top of that scoreboard. And there's a problem with this. There's a really, really serious problem, which is this. We can get so obsessed with impressing people that we don't realize none of those things impress God. Just think about it. 
God holds everything. He has all power, all wisdom, all glory. And he gave us all of these things to see him in it and to give glory back to him in those things. And instead, we ignore him and we say, I am enough and I am the best. So you're not going to care about going to God if you're going to ignore who gave you what you have and give it back to him in return. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, all of our gifts and all of our attempts for self-promotion are rejecting God. That's the heart behind it. We're rejecting God. But there's a second thing. And there's a second thing that is even closer to the category of Christians and how we struggle, and which is this, taking pride in achievements, taking pride in accomplishments. This is the second thing that Paul said, I was more impressive than anyone else out there. I worked the hardest. Paul starts this by saying, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the strictest party of the Jews. Paul says that in Acts 26, verse 5. They were the Jewish people most concerned with obeying God's commandments. And these were actual commandments from the Old Testament and over years and years and years, making up commands. And Paul actually was set up perfectly because at a young age, he had a really good teacher and his teacher was named Gamaliel. And Paul actually references this. All the Jewish people knew this guy Gamaliel because he was a highly respected Pharisee who taught him in the strictest manner of the law. That's Acts 22.3, Paul's own testimony. Paul took the opportunity he had to be trained to become a Pharisee and he became the best Pharisee. He became the Pharisee who knew the law better than anyone else, and he kept the law to the T. Paul says this himself in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14. Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous, which means incited, enthusiastic, was I for the traditions of my fathers. And that actually gets to the second of the three things that Paul names in why he was the best Pharisee. It wasn't his actions only, but his attitude. He was zealous. That's the second thing he says. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Which for Christians is a weird thing to hear. He's like, you were so enthusiastic for the law, so you killed and imprisoned Christians. That sounds awful. Well, that's because we're thinking as Christians. To Jewish people, that was awesome. Because in their eyes, Paul loved God so much that he would go out and get rid of heretics. And that was the best thing, the most God-honoring thing that you could do to a Jewish person. Get rid of the people who are blaspheming God. And that's exactly what Paul did. If you remember his testimony, when he met Jesus, he was literally on the way to a city to get a law done for him that gave him permission to kill Christians. And that was impressive to the Jewish people. And finally... The third way that Paul could take pride in his accomplishments more than anyone else, more than any other Jew, was this. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Blameless. Now, if you ask Paul, back then his name was Saul. If you asked him, Saul, are you perfect? He would have told you, no, I'm not perfect. Honestly, I'm not. But you know what? You won't be able to point out a sin in me. And that wouldn't have been a cocky thing to say. Because he was telling the truth. No Jewish person out there could have said, here's the law, Paul. Here's your life. Here's where it doesn't add up. That's how good of a Pharisee he was. 
And according to the Jews, that's how good of a God worshiper he was. Paul was the best, at least in comparison to the people around him. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make. He said, I am so good in the eyes of all these people around me that I really believed I was good enough for God. I really, really believed that. And if we ask ourselves the same question, I think we know the answer. Do I think I'm good enough for God? The truth is, when I see certain things I do, it's actually revealing that in my heart, I actually do think I'm good enough for God. I do the right things. I should be rewarded in the right ways. But the problem is, we never, ever second-guess ourselves to think, maybe I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. Maybe everything I do is because I want to prove I'm a good person. Anxiety and pride is in our works from day one. And we believe all sorts of mistruths that give us value. Value that we think is good enough to please a perfect God. Often it's because we have human standards of goodness. Often it's because we compare ourselves to others. Okay, this person's a Christian. I do a lot better things than them. I must be a Christian. But I think often for many of us too, it's because, again, we know Christians are supposed to do good things. We're supposed to be sanctified. We're supposed to go out into the world and do great things for Christ. But the problem is we skip Christ. We skip him. And we think the best way I'm going to know I'm a Christian is I do the right things. And that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Christianity is this. I need help to get saved because I can't make myself good enough to be saved. No matter what I do, I need the all-consuming, supernatural, transforming grace of God for me to do it in the right way. But before that, I need to know this. All the good things that I do that I think are so impressive to God are actually gross. And the reason I say gross is because that's the language of Isaiah 64, verse 6. Isaiah says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us all away. That's Isaiah's way of saying our goodness is gross compared to God's goodness. And it's gross when we try to compare it to God's goodness. My seminary professor used to say this, Imagine going to a Ferrari dealership and telling the guy there you want to buy a Ferrari. He shows you a Ferrari. It's beautiful. It's expensive. Brand new paint job. Leather interior. It goes vroom, vroom. Everyone likes that. It's the best car you could imagine buying. And then he says, the cost is $350,000. And you say, awesome. And you give him your dirty underwear. And you say, this is how I will pay for the Ferrari. So that might seem graphic to you, but let me remind you, in Isaiah 64, 6, he said, our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That is literally the closest thing to dirty underwear. And this is what Isaiah is saying. You going to God and saying, I'm good enough to get into heaven, and giving all your good works and saying, this is enough for heaven, that's the exact same thing. 
So the question isn't this. It's not just ridiculous. It's offensive. It's offensive. Do you think that Ferrari dealership guy is going to be like super pumped or he's going to have a laugh? He's going to be like, that's gross. Get that out of my face. And even though I understand the situation seems ridiculous and funny, just understand this. God is offended with what we think is good outside of Christ. He's offended because it's awful. It's saying that I am enough. Someone who wants to be God himself can go into heaven with all of these things that I've actually done for myself and I can say, God, you should let me in. And this is the point. Because Paul isn't trying to beat us up. He's not trying to just make you feel bad to sit down and just be like, oh God. He wants to put you in the place you need to be to accept his help. The reality is, if you want to know God, you need to understand that you can't know God yourself. And that's exactly, exactly where you need to be to accept Christ. Listen to Paul's words in verse 7 to 8. He says this, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, which is the most similar word he could use to polluted garment, like in Isaiah 64. And he says, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul thought he was so awesome, and then he met Christ. And he realized he'd been comparing himself to the wrong person his whole life. He'd been comparing himself to other people. And thought that therefore he was good enough for God. But when he compared himself to Christ. When he compared himself to Christ. He realized he was nothing. And he was worse than that. This is accounting language. He put his good works on the scale. And then Christ on the other side of the scale. And the scale broke. In favor of Christ. I remember an illustration I heard once where someone got three people and they put them on a stage. And they told the first person, you're Jesus. And the second person, you're the Apostle Paul. And the third person, you're Adolf Hitler. And then he said, if we were to make this a scale of goodness, where would you put everyone? Where would you put Jesus? Where would you put Paul? Where would you put Hitler? And usually it goes something like this. Okay, he's Hitler way over here. And then there's like me in the middle, and then there's like Jesus over here. That's kind of, I'm kind of like in the middle. And then the point was this. It's totally wrong. Here's Jesus, and here's you, and here's Hitler. You're like basically the same person. And everyone's like, what the heck? I'm not Hitler. And you're like, yeah, no, you're not Hitler. Here's the point. In comparison to the goodness of Christ, you might as well be. That's how bad our sin is. That's how bad. Because the goodness of Christ is infinite. Literally. Because it's perfect. Paul realized this. He was on a ship. And he thought he was heading to heaven. But he was actually in the middle of a storm. And it would have been easy to get out of the storm. All he'd have to do is take all of the spiritual confidence and self-ego and all these things so valuable about himself. All he had to do was throw it overboard. That's all he had to do, but he wouldn't do it. 
And yet all that time he had no idea that those things were bringing the ship down. But then he met Christ. And Christ told him, if you get this stuff off the ship, then this ship is going to go all the way into an eternity with me. And when he saw how good Christ was, he couldn't get the stuff off the ship fast enough. It's like the words of a Sovereign Grace song that some of you might be familiar with. Gladly would I leave behind me all the pleasures that I have known to pursue surpassing treasures at the throne of God the Son. That's what Paul is talking about. And the pleasure he's talking about is the pleasure I take in myself. The question really is, what would you gain if you gain Christ? What would you gain if you got rid of your self-confidence and self-dependence and you traded it for a knowledge of Christ? Well, I can't say words better than Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said a lot of beautiful words about this. And they're actually up on the screen so that you can follow with me as I read them to you. This is Lloyd-Jones explaining what you gain when you gain Christ. He says, it is a knowledge that brought Paul into an immediate, direct, personal contact with the most glorious person that this world has ever seen. Here is a knowledge that can enable us to meet God, that can enable us to meet the Lord Jesus Christ and have fellowship and communion with him. It is the excellence of the knowledge because of the greatness of the person. Undoubtedly, Paul also thought of it in terms of what it had done for him. It had saved him and it delivered him from hell. Is there any knowledge comparable to the knowledge that your conscience is clear and that the book is right and that your sins are erased and that God in mercy has forgiven you? What excellent knowledge. This knowledge then brings peace and joy, a tranquil and quiet mind and a joy that is greater than this world can ever know or give or take away. New life and power to live in a manner worthy of the name of man. That is what it had given him. It gave him promises with respect to his future. It told them that he had become a child of God and because of that, he was an heir and therefore a joint heir with Christ. It gave him an insight into glory and life beyond this world and death and the grave. And it showed him the perfect life that he as a Christian would share with God to all eternity. And when Paul saw that, everything else had become very small and insignificant. And he says, I count it as dung and refuse. The excellency of the knowledge. It is excellent in itself. It is excellent in what it has already done for us. And it is excellent in what it is going to do. That is knowing Christ. And we're going to talk about that in a lot of detail next week. There's only one thing we need to do this week, which is this. Do you want to know you? Or do you want to know Christ? Because if you want to know Christ, you've got to get out of the way. No Christian will ever remove pride before meeting Christ in eternity. It's on that day where he's going to wash away all our self-confidence and all our exaltation in self. And yet, he has told us this. If you want to know Christ, you've got to die. You've got to die to yourself. You've got to admit, nothing in my hands I bring simply, only to that cross. And let me end with a little bit of an illustration of what this might look like. I was watching a sitcom recently, and the two characters in the sitcom were a middle-aged man and his father. 
The middle-aged man was a psychiatrist. He was a Harvard graduate, and he had a show in which he helped a lot of people with his problems. By the world's standards, he was a very, very smart man, and he knew it, and he was confident in it. His father was a normal dude, just an everyday guy and an ex-cop. One day, the son found a chessboard, and because he loved chess, he wanted to challenge his father to a game of chess. And his father, not only because he wasn't intellectually gifted in the same way the son was, but also because he'd never played chess, wasn't really down. But the son convinced him to play, so they played chess. And the son lost to his own surprise. So he said, maybe it's a fluke. Let's play again. And they played again. And he lost again. And he was more surprised. And he slowly got more frustrated. So they played again and again and again. And the father kept winning and winning and winning. And the son kept losing and losing and losing. Eventually the father was bored and he left the room. And the son goes to the couch and he picks up a pillow and he goes, and he screams into the pillow and he starts punching the pillows, absolutely flabbergasted as why he would lose to his father. He goes and talks to his brother, and his brother and him start coming up with all sorts of ridiculous ideas as to why he's losing, which encourages him to keep playing and keep losing. Until finally, one night, he's so obsessed with winning that he starts a miniature fire in his home, sets up the fire alarm, sets off the fire alarm, wakes everyone up, everyone freaks out, he's like, oh no, it's actually fine, turns to his dad and says, hey, now that we're up, we might as well play another game of chess. The father immediately catches on and he starts addressing his son, saying, you are obsessed with winning. You're obsessed with winning. And the son keeps saying, no, 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 I'm not. And something clicks for the dad. And he realizes and he accuses his son appropriately. It's not that you want to win. It's that you want to beat me. That's what it is. And the son kept denying it. And he said, the more you deny it, the more you're dishonoring me. And I think that is a perfect illustration of how we get in the way of salvation. Because we think that these little efforts that we make to boast in ourselves are not a big deal. But you know what it is? It's challenging God to chess. It's trying to beat him. It's trying to say, I'm better than you. That's what it is. And this is what God is saying. You don't need to. You don't need to. Because the person you're playing against is your father. Your father's going to beat you. Stop playing him. Join his team. That's all he wants. And the reality is when you set down yourself and you approach the father and you experience the warmth of his supernatural, eternally loving, faithfully serving and sacrificing embrace. You don't want to play him anymore. And the more you live a life where you're trying your best to kill your pride, you get more and more of the warmth of that embrace. That's what Paul's trying to talk about. And that's really the only question that we need to solve tonight, which is this. How do you get out of the way? It's this. Put your faith in Christ. Putting your faith in Christ, as one commentator I read said, is the equivalent of forsaking all of your goodness as loss so that God would be glorified in Christ. Put your faith in Christ. That's how you get out of the way.
And we're going to talk more about the details of what that looks like and what we gain in Christ next week. Let's pray. Father, there is nothing worse in our eyes than a sermon that would condemn us. We don't like to be condemned. Father, for many of us, Sunday mornings for the last month have hurt because they've hurt our pride. We want to exalt ourselves. We don't want to live a life in which the world scoffs at us and our co-workers demean us and our friends at school may even forsake us. We don't want to be people dishonored, disregarded. We want to be important. We want to be valuable. Father, you've told us that we are valuable. You've made us in your image. And yet we want to take that image and make it an image of ourselves. We want to be kings of our own world. But Father, when we do that, we compete with you, the king of the universe. Father, we need you so desperately to humble us. We need you to show us that our sin must be forsaken. That in faith we must repent of our sin and come to you. Father, that's too hard for us to do on our own. We need you to change our hearts that you may do it for us. Father, we pray you would do it for us. For those of you who don't know you, Father, please change our hearts to see that everything we need to be right with you is done in Christ. And all we need to know to who has come to him. And Father, for those of us who do know you, we need you to reveal your gospel even deeper, that we'd feel more and more of the warmth of your embrace, that we would not rest on our own righteousness, that we would get rid of the goodness that we think we have, and we would simply cling to your cross. Father, help us realize that the ground is level at the foot of your cross. No matter how much we've done, no matter how hypocritical we've ever been, you'll accept us. You'll take us in, not because of us, but because of what your son has done for us. Please let that sink in. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Um, I hope that that makes sense. If you are having trouble struggling with this,